Welcome to the History and Physical, the official medical student podcast of In Training Magazine. We're your hosts, Kevin Wong, Amol Donker, and Rohit Kakade. As medicine moves into the 21st century, how will medical education adapt? Also, what is digital literacy, and what does it mean for the physician of tomorrow? Today we have Dr. Brian Vardabedian of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Dr. Vardabedian, more commonly known as Dr. V on Twitter, is one of the thought leaders in social media, medicine, and technology, and the intersection of the three. His expertise has been sought by various institutions and expressed through a variety of mediums. We're lucky to have him here today. Thanks for being on the show, Dr. V. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. So our first question for you is, you were one of the earliest physicians to make the transition to blogging, social media, and public communication. What was the motivation behind that process, and what is it like to be a pioneer in a new form of physician dialogue? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I kind of got here accidentally. In 2006, I wrote a book on infant colic, and at the time there was no social media, and who was an author friend said, well, you've got to have a, a blog in order to promote your book, and so I cr- created this blog with the selfish intent, uh, the blog was called Parenting Solve, but it was the selfish intent of selling and promoting books, and I figured I'd kind of do it for a few months and then kind of uh, be done with it, and um, I realized very shortly after starting my journey blogging that that uh, I had a real platform to the world. And uh, there was one one thing that kind of marked that, and I, I wrote this post uh, when Gerber and Nestle merged, I think it was in 2007, and uh, the story got picked up by one of the European financial feeds, and my traffic just went nuts, and uh, some uh, execs from, uh, from Nestle wanted to know who I was and what I was about and wanted to talk to me. And I realized at that point that this was more than just a gimmick for selling books. And I just, I kept writing, but uh, get into writing about technology more in 2008. That's exciting. So I'm sure many of our listeners use social media recreationally or, you know, to keep contacts with networks of friends and family, things along those lines. But what you've really done with social media is take it into sort of a more professionally oriented public-facing angle. So if you were sort of speaking to an uh, audience of medical students, how would you make the pitch to them and aspiring physicians that they should be engaged in healthcare social media in a similar way? Well, you know, I, I, well, I try to think about public presence. I, I like to talk more about public presence than I do about social media. Social media is a tool that gets us to our public presence, okay? And so I try not to talk just about the tool, but... Uh, what we can do uh, with that tool. So I always make the case that a public presence is really something, it's really inevitable and we really don't have a choice. We, are, we all are public. The moment we lay our hands on a patient, we become part of the public dialogue. And so we have two options. Either we can participate in the public dialogue or we can let other people sort of create our, our story about us uh, on our behalf. And so... Um, I think it's critical that we're out there uh, creating um, and painting that, 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 that story that we want people to know about us. And so I think that's it, it's a really important point. That's an interesting point to bring up as well because um, there seems to be an interesting rise in, in terms of like the humanities in medicine and kind of making doctors appear more like normal human beings and showing that they're, they're more multidimensional than, their, than the plain white coat image would suggest. Right. 
So we see a lot of doctors sharing stories um, online about what it's like from their perspective. And I think it, it does lend itself to making us more amenable to patients in the long term. No, absolutely. And, and what's so interesting is that up until 10, 15 years ago when we saw this uh, emergence of uh, the democratization media, everything we understood about physicians was really limited to what was created by the public affairs office, the local hospital, or the AMA. You know, all of our, the, the pictures that represented us were carefully chosen, all of our quotes were carefully chosen, and of course something happened on the way to the clinic, right? The internet appeared, and uh, we saw the emergence of all these remarkable individual voices. It's quite obvious now that physicians are more than just one, you know, looking one way. We saw all these amazing voices. We talked about Z-Dog before the show. I mean, this is, there's no way that someone would have had the capacity, or would have had the ability, rather, to do what he's doing, and, and that's really uh, because of the nature of this technology and the fact that we are all now publishers. Mm -hmm. And you know, as we step into this new medium, it also creates a teaching opportunity for um, those of us who've already been involved in kind of social media and public presence, which brings me to my next question. In recent years, one of the exciting activities that you've been involved in has been the development of a digital literacy curriculum at the Baylor College of Medicine. Can you give us an overview of what digital smarts is and what you hope to convey or instill in the curriculum and kind of what the process of implementing like it has been like? Yeah, yeah. So I think in general, I would say in medical education in general, we, we do a very poor job of preparing the next generation of physicians for what lies ahead. You know, poor job for preparing them for this digital future that we've been talking about here for the past 10 minutes or so, and uh, there are a lot of challenges that physicians are going to you know, face with their public presence going forward, and so at Baylor, I've initiated a longitudinal curriculum called Digital Smarts, which is intended to prepare students for this future. We basically, uh, we have still a fairly limited amount of time with the students, and we have them at orientation, we have them at preclinical we have them at fourth year, and we're debating whether we're going to keep a third-year segment. So we have them at least at three or four points during the four years, and we try to phase in a, a, during the preclinical phase. We tend to talk about things like smartphone use. The early approach is more about mitigation of risk and trying how not to be stupid. Uh, going as we approach the fourth year, which opportunity that a public presence really affords them how to establish a solid professional presence, uh, how to establish your LinkedIn profile, how to use Twitter as a personal learning network, and even how to teach other people how to do this. So we kind of take it from mitigation of risk, you know, and then we get up to sort of leveraging these tools for their for their future. It, you know, the field of medicine in general tends to be a rather slow-moving one, uh, tends to change, so to speak. When you are trying to get this curriculum off the ground at Baylor, what was the kind of resistance that you met? Wait, what did you say? Yeah, yeah, that's to, a great uh, question. The, the challenge that every medical school faces, and uh, well, you'll 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 see this too as you start uh, this month. That there's so much pressure to put things into the curriculum that there's such a limited amount of time. So when you have a new idea like this or something new that needs to be introduced, it, it's a real challenge to find a space for it. Um, I was fortunate in that I had the ear of uh, the ear of our president, uh, Dr. Paul Klotman, who was very very supportive of this, and so he essentially made it a mandate that we were going to start to implement this kind of curricular material into our uh, 
into our program, and so it, it made it easy for me to work with the curriculum dean and the dean of education uh, to find um, spots for it. Uh, we've been using these transitional areas, orientation, transition to clinics, end of the fourth year, times when uh, the students come back together to have these periods where these sorts of courses work really well. So I, at Baylor, I didn't get a lot of resistance, but I do know, talking to my colleagues around the country, that getting this sort of thing implemented is a real challenge. And so what um, my other colleagues have done have been to start programs kind of after hours and during lunchtime and to kind of wing it. And I think what they what I've seen is that once you start to develop this kind of material, people see the value of it and you kind of get invited in. So I think that's what I would recommend if I know you were you were thinking about doing this in Oregon or had some opportunity to do this, and mm -hmm. that's sometimes the best way to do it is to find these opportunities and spots where you can do some teaching and kind of build it and they will come, you know? Yeah, definitely. So let's take it a step beyond that then. And I know this is something we've talked about, for, but I want to really pitch the question for our listeners. So what is the idea of digital literacy in medical training mean to you? So when we think of literacy in a traditional sense, right, we think of being able to read or Likewise, for digital literacy, you might be able to think, we might be inclined to see it as sort of using technology, things like being proficient with digital devices or using the internet and search engines and the like. What you've talked about you know, in conferences, in your blog, really seems to go deeper than that and push digital literacy another level. Can you describe uh, to our listeners how you see that concept and where you see it in medical education? Yeah, now I, you cut out just for a moment, Jamal, so I, I, but I heard most of the question. You know, I think... As you said, when we think about literacy, we tend to think of it in these psycholinguistic terms, the capacity to read. And, you know, literacy, um, as Rheingold uh, suggests, is skill plus social competency. So we can look at it as all these skill sets and the ability to use them. And then when we add digital to it, it's just the ability to function in a digital environment. When we think about what physicians do in terms of our skills and capacities, a lot of us, a lot of the attendings that you'll you'll work with were, were trained uh, with analog skill sets. They had a whole different set of uh, things they had to learn, accessing abilities that, that students will need. Think about one of those skill sets that's, that, that doctors are need to, going to need to have going forward. And it becomes such a critical question for folks like you because we need to know how to fashion our, our training programs to to meet what, what you guys are going to need to do. So you know, moving on, I know we've talked about this in the past, at least Amol, Kevin, and I have, um, but I think this is a topic that our listeners will find particularly interesting. Uh, given how easily accessible the Internet is, I there's a gut feeling amongst us all that the concept of a primary care physician as the front line of medicine, I think, is giving way to Google as the front line of medicine. When you have to wait, you know, two or three weeks to see a primary care physician, whereas you can just search on your smartphone about some kind of symptom you have, it seems like information online is more and more becoming the go-to source for patients. Um, given that, and granted, I don't have any statistics that I can pull off the top of my head to back that up. But given that idea, do you think that physicians have a professional or moral duty to be present online and or to create content online? Yeah, yeah, abs absolutely. And I brought this question up in 2009, this question about a moral obligation, and it kind of set the it, – it led to a lot of conversation, discussion, and still people bring this question up to this – to this day, I do think we have a moral obligation to be there, and I always like to bring the example up of the whole kerfuffle with vaccines and autism. 
um, when Andrew Wakefield published his fraudulent uh, paper, I guess 15 years ago, for the next decade or so, the entire conversation surrounding vaccine and autism, it was, it was hijacked by this vocal minority. And so when these young frightened mothers would search uh, vaccines and autism, they would get the shrill voice of this, this vocal minority. And as a travesty because we consider that there are 65,000 pediatricians in the American Academy of Pediatrics had each of us just once a year created a simple comment on a, on a blog post or created a two-minute video or just created some type of content, we would have completely ruled the search engines. And so I really hold uh, uh, pediatricians as somewhat complicit in the whole vaccine autism problem that we faced. And so going forward, I think we do have this obligation to be out there and uh, uh, participating and in, in, in contributing. And I'll just add this one thing that uh, physicians are kind of the, they, they're, they're the first to complain about what their patients access, but they're the last to create it. And it's kind of an embarrassing reality of uh, being a physician in the 21st century, and I hope that changes. To sort of follow up on that, then, why do you think it is that medicine as a community has been so reluctant to make that transition online, or has been so reluctant to really put their voice out there? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a big question, Amol, and there's, there's you know, a lot of theories, and if you spend a lot of time talking to doctors, there are a number of themes that kind of come up over and over again, and one, of course, is the issue of time. All of us sit here at this on these podcasts, and we talk about just how easy it is to make content and the moral obligation to create content, and the reality is that very few of us are very good at writing or recording or videotaping, and so it's a big ask to have doctors making things. So I, I think it's a big challenge and a big time challenge for doctors to to create opportunity, uh, to create that content, rather. You know, I, I, I think we get back to this question of literacy. I'm, I'm not sure that physicians really are trained to make and create and translate, which is really what's required to take our knowledge and put it into a digital format. There's also the issue of liability. Um, that was one thing that docs always kind of hung on. But um, those are kind of some of the things that I think have held a lot of doctors back and... Uh, mm. It's probably more we can come up with. Yeah, definitely. And so just to follow up on that concept of time that you mentioned, one of the things I've always noticed about your writing is I can understand for physicians how, you know, keeping up a consistent flow of original content, engaging with people in the public space, or even just being able to curate information, keep up with online news, things like that can be a really time-consuming sort of process. In general, how do you find that you're able to do all those things yourself, or what are some of the tools and strategies perhaps for our audience, that you use to stay ahead of the curve? You mean how I find the time to do it or? Sort of, yeah. So how do you find the time? What are some of the um, tools and like yeah. programs, things that you use to be able to really make that work for you, something that someone else might be able to do if they you know, want to be engaged in the public yeah. sphere, want to be able to create content or to curate content, but are really struggling with that sort of time constraint or that information overload? Yeah, no, no that's a great question. Let me add something to the last question, which was about what's kept doctors back, and I just wanted to add this because I just wanted the light of the question you're asking, and any new technology that comes along um, has, to, has to show value for doctors to adopt it, and so I think this is one of the things that 
it's really difficult to get through to physicians, and, and that is the value of a public presence, the value of being out there and being part of the conversation. I think when you can demonstrate that value, doctors really do kind of come around to it and embrace it. Um, the ones that do use Twitter as a personal learning network, once they recognize the value, they can't quite get off of it, like kind of like me. So just to segue to your question, being public and being out there and using these tools of public dialogue has created so many opportunities for me that it's something I just have to do. It's kind of be become part of what I do. And writing and creating and thinking has become part of my workflow. And so the first, the very first thing for me is is capturing ideas, which is probably the most probably the most important thing I do. All around me, when I'm in clinic, I have Evernote on my iPhone. When I see things, I see sort of problems and complexities and tensions in the environment around me. It spurs me to, you know, it gives me an idea and I kind of write it down. And so I collect all these ideas in Evernote in a notebook called my Spark file. And I've got hundreds of random thoughts and quotes and things that I've collected. And I can go into that notebook at any point point and find one of those and start riffing on it and come up with a 300, 400 word post. So for me, capture is so critical. And I hear this from other writers too, that it's, it's really important when you hear things and see things that you write them down. So for me, that's, that's really important. I don't know if that answers the question. There are lots of tools I use. I use Feedly for aggregating uh, my reading and, and, and content. Like I said, Evernote is a huge part of my world. It's where I kind of keep all my information. Yeah, definitely. That. All right. So that's about all the questions we have for you tonight. Thanks so much for coming out and sharing your expertise. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I love what you guys are doing, and I hope there are lots of people listening and getting lots out of this because I think there's a lot of opportunities for this next generation to, you know, they can use these in so many ways, and it's uh, just an amazing, this is perhaps the most amazing time to be in medicine. Um, it is. Witnessing this tremendous shift right now and you guys are right in the middle of it and it's a real exciting place to be if any of our listeners want to find you online where can they do that uh probably the best thing to do is to go to 33charts.com or um, i'm on twitter all the time it's uh, at dr v that's dr underscore v and just let me know you're out there i'd love to chat fantastic thank you so much for your time dr v it's been a pleasure okay guys good luck the H&P Podcast is a podcast by students for students. We're looking to evolve with you, so feel free to reach out to us via email, Twitter, Tumblr, via the show notes, or on the in-training website. If you like us, please consider subscribing on iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. The H&P is a member of Vocalis, a podcast network for medical students. Please listen to our partners at Vocalis Network. Dot wix.com slash listen.